I'm James Bays at the Finance Ministry in The Hague. The Dutch army doesn't own tanks, instead it leases 18 Leopard 2s from Germany. Earlier this year, the Prime Minister Mark Rutte said his country would deliver them to Ukraine. What's more, in a joint statement, the defence ministers of the Netherlands, Denmark and Germany said their countries plan to deliver at least 100 Leopard 1 tanks. That's after Berlin approved the export of up to 178 tanks to Kyiv. The pledge comes as the Russian invasion of Ukraine nears its first anniversary. But as geopolitical tensions continue to rise, so too do concerns over energy supplies. The Netherlands has stopped importing Russian energy except for liquefied natural gas or LNG. But how is the conflict affecting the Dutch economy? And as tensions escalate after a Chinese balloon was shot down over North American airspace, should Brussels strengthen its relationship with Beijing? These are some of the questions we put to the Dutch Deputy Prime Minister. Sigrid Karg talks to Al Jazeera. Sigrid Karg, Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister of the Netherlands, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Let me start with the one subject that's dominated the global media over the last year, and that's the war in Ukraine. Let me take you back to the beginning, one year ago when Putin invaded Ukraine. Be honest with me. Did you think that Ukraine would be able to withstand the might of the Russian military, or did you think Kyiv would fall in days? I think all of us, uh, certainly the early days, and those are, that are not in the military intelligence realm, feared that the, 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 the fall of Kiev might be imminent. But the people of Ukraine, and I think thanks to NATO and thanks to international support, have done a formidable job under the worst of circumstances. The human tragedy that's afflicting Ukraine is, I think, unconscionable. And at the same time, I'm very pleased uh, about the commitment of NATO and the European Union militarily, politically, and of course, at a humanitarian level. I think the Ukrainians are doing all the work, but the unity of purpose of NATO and the European Union is also helping them to make a difference and to withstand the horrific Russian onslaught. You have been a strong supporter, your country, of Ukraine. Uh, in terms of military, you're going to deliver Leopard 1 and Leopard 2 tanks Correct. to Ukraine. We've had a meeting of defence ministers of NATO in recent days, more weapons and equipment, but the NATO Secretary-General says the number of artillery shells used by Ukraine is outpacing production, and he's warned our defence industries are under strain. From where you sit in the finance ministry here in The Hague, how sustainable is the current level of European defence spending? Well, we need to keep it up. Uh, I think we've all learned uh, a tough lesson. We've neglected our investment in defence. I think we've taken too much the peace dividend since the Second World War for granted. Uh, the Netherlands themselves, this cabinet, myself, we have committed to meet the 2% NATO norms, but that's not enough. I think we need to sustain it. All of us need to do our bit. We need to make sure that NATO remains as fit for purpose for the future, but also to withstand and support countries such as Ukraine. Equally so, of course, we need to be creative and we need to team up and partner. I mean, look at the European Union. Not many countries outside the Union would have thought that the direction and the unity and the decisions taken this last year by the member states of the Union would have been feasible. Uh, the investment in the, in the European peace facility, the support, the distribution, the coordination of arms supplies, etc., etc., within a NATO setting has been tremendous not enough yet, so we need to up our game, invest more, 
and we need to be able to sustain it long after, hopefully, the Ukraine war has been settled and Ukraine's territorial integrity has been restored. But sustaining it over time, as time drags on, obviously becomes harder. You've talked about Europe, but let me turn to the US. You've already got, in the House of Representatives, Republicans saying no more blank checks for Ukraine. And, of course, in 2024, you've got a US presidential election. We may end up with a very different sort of president. We may, for example, end up with Donald Trump in the White House saying... You know, he's going to change policy completely overnight. Are you worried that if the US support wanes, then everything collapses? Well, I don't think it's a time to worry. It's a time to plan, to act, to, and, and to anticipate. And I mean by that that, first of all, we are still uh, very uh, reliant, and in a good way, on American leadership. If the Americans hadn't stepped in the way they had, I think the situation would have been different. At the same time, we owe it to our own continent and our American partners said we do our bit, and that means we need to invest, we need to coordinate better, and we need to make sure we are a reliable partner within NATO and outside of NATO. So we, so we can anticipate whichever changes that may happen. At the same time, we have to be cognizant this is a war on our continent. This is a violation of our standards of international law, and we need to be we need to be there to walk the talk. And as Europeans, we need to do that within all the alliances that we have. So we are prepared for any outcome and perhaps also a future withdrawal or a change of political context. And within Europe, within my, our own country, we also invest to make sure that, for instance, people that may be doubting, saying so much money spent on a crisis, on a war, not in my country, um, that we keep up their purchasing power, that we make sure that their needs are met. So the realm of doubt is actually very small and that we keep echoing and projecting the importance of winning this war because it's about safety and security of Ukraine, but that of all of us. Many, as you've said, have been surprised by what Europe has done over the last year. We're coming up now to the 10th round of sanctions that yes. the EU is preparing. What, in your view, is still missing from the Western sanctions? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one, I think. Um, we're honing in. It is the 10th sanctions package that's being negotiated right now. Um, I think the difficulty always is with sanctions. Uh, they need to be uh, hard-hitting. They need to be constant. But the impact of sanctions is not always immediate. And I think what we've done has been formidable. Uh, but we need to keep honing in on hitting those actors, entities or institutions that are enabling directly or indirectly the, directly the war effort. And that's what we keep on doing. And we're getting, fortunately, much better at it, but we need to remain very vigilant. There are always loopholes, and we need to find the loopholes as much as we go for the big picture, the big hit. Tell me about the end game. How does this all end? When is it time to stop the fighting and start the negotiations? Well, for a former peace negotiator, that's a very difficult question. Uh, but we've been very firm. We are guided by Ukraine, and the Ukrainians determine uh, the conditions under which uh, the war will be ended, uh, and it should, should end in a victory for them, uh, and that's the game. So I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll let off pace. Well, I understand. The that's, that's the point that all, all you leaders make, but there's a problem with that, isn't there? President Zelensky has made it clear he wants to retake every inch of Ukrainian territory. And not many military observers think Russia's going to give up Crimea easily, for example. Yeah, but at the same time, um, I'm a little bit uh, reluctant to engage in uh, armchair diplomacy or 
providing comment whilst a war is, uh, is raging. And at the moment, all our efforts are on uh, sustaining Ukraine's ability militarily and financially and at a human level to continue this very valiant and important existential war effort. And I think debating sort of scenario B or C is uh, not helping, and it may also feed into Russian propaganda, and uh, none of us want to engage that story. Let me ask you about what's going on in Russia, because President Putin shows no sign of giving up. In fact, he's sending more and more troops, using the word cannon fodder, I think really does describe what he's doing right now. But he's proved, I think, that this war, he believes, is existential for him and for his government in Moscow. So if you're going to go with Zelensky until there's a victory, doesn't that really mean you're going until there's regime change in Moscow? Not necessarily. I don't know. I think there, there are many, many variables there on the table. What's very clear is in, indeed that the Russian propaganda and domestic propaganda uh, so far is still uh, holding. Um, it's very difficult for us outside to know, and certainly not um, for when you're not uh, guided by only intelligence information, to know what the Russian population uh, feels, be it in the bigger cities or the remote areas. The casualties, of course, will be an important indicator. Uh, families, mothers and sons, mothers and fathers that lose their sons. Uh, I don't know enough about the domestic discontent and how that can be fueled, but of course the regime is tough. Uh, and it is existential for Putin himself and those around him. And I think we need to bear that in mind. We're sitting right now in The Hague, the city of international justice. Yes. And there's lots of talk about the war crimes and accountability. There's talk now of a special tribunal, and I believe your government is offering to host that tribunal. Correct. How would it work, and could we see President Putin in the dock? Well, the details of how it would work have yet to be clarified, to be honest. I think the in principle was the announcement that a centre will be established in order to pave the way for future accountability, because justice is only real when justice is rendered, particularly when it comes to war crimes. Uh, so what the centre will do, it's, it will guide the, and coordinate the efforts to collect the data, to gather the evidence for the moment that a tribunal can be established. Um, I don't know when that moment will be, but evidence uh, in a court of law, in international court of law, is as important. And I think this also provides hope and it gives a specter that justice will be rendered. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It's important that it will be rendered. Deputy Prime Minister, let me ask you to put on your, also your finance minister hat now. Um, the war in Ukraine has been an important factor in the state of the global economy. We have a global energy crisis, a global food crisis and soaring prices. How bad are things? Well, globally, uh, things are less gloomy than we all feared. But of course, uh, I could, one could be accused of being Eurocentric, because it all depends on where you are seated, which country you're in. The highly indebted countries have been rendered another blow uh, by this crisis, food prices, energy prices. Eurozone crisis, uh, countries have been able to do quite well, all things considered, because a lot of us have deep pockets, we've spent, We've uh, upped income support and we've taken a wide range of temporary and targeted measures. Yeah, you've done things that aren't really very Dutch. This is known as the no. frugal nation and you seem to be spending your way out of the crisis. Some would use maybe the phrase, I'm not an economist, but a sort of Keynesian approach to things. Yes, um, we took, uh, we went, I went for what we call the bold move. We took a risk, but we, we 
we sort of took over the risk from small companies and households that were really in a state of anxiety over purchasing power, high energy bills and historically high inflation. We took over the risk to the side of the government saying we will deal with it, we, we could occur higher debts, but let's provide for that stability and indirectly also continued support for the war effort, which is so important. And then we'll have to fix basically how we will manage to pay off our debts. But not all countries are in such a fortunate position. So we're also very mindful of the leading role of both the IMF and the World Bank in order to ensure that a number of countries do not fall into greater debt and that we support them with their debt reduction efforts. Do you think you can avoid a recession in Netherlands and the rest of the European Union this year? Um, for our out the outlook for the Eurozone and uh, most European countries is uh, relatively okay, all things considered. There is very modest growth, but we had anticipated the recession. The Netherlands will see uh, also um, particularly modest growth, like 0.6% this year, but it's remarkably better than we had feared, and it's partly because of the government support packages. And at the same time, because China is reopening, supply line, lanes are opening, so the economy globally is picking up, but we're not out of the woods yet, because uncertainty will continue to uh, hang over the market, because we're so dependent on many factors, and energy is one of them. People, though, here, like everywhere else, are really struggling. The prices of food, other basic goods soaring. We've seen strikes and discontent. Even if your policies work, you are the Minister of Finance at this time of pain. Are you worried that you're in a sort of no-win situation, that you're, you and your party are going to be blamed, even if your policies work in the end? Yes, but uh, fear is a, is a poor counsel. Um, and I've decided a uh, long time ago that if we do the right thing, it's up to, upon us to communicate, to share that with people, to try to bring them along. Um, but loss at the polls cannot be uh, the greatest indicator of trying to make the right choices. It's upon me and my party to basically communicate that better. Equally so, we are still a well-endowed nation. What we need to do is to really focus on the most vulnerable. Uh, there are those uh, in the Netherlands that have tremendous savings, companies have made huge profits, and yet we have a part of the population that's finding it very difficult at a structural level to make ends meet. And so our attention needs to be primarily focused on them. You talk about companies that have made huge profits. We're supposed to be at a time of a green transition. And you look at the profits of the energy companies, of the oil companies. For yes. example, Shell, a company that used to be based in this country until recently, announced a profit for last year of 40 billion yeah. US dollars. Yeah. Some would say that's obscene. A lot of us, uh, including, of course, the general public, are, are astounded, politely put, by these profits. Uh, these companies themselves, of course, claim and that they are investing into renewables and that they're fostering the green energy transition. I think a number of us are asking the question, what is the level of profit that is conscionable? Where do you reinvest? Which level of profit do you use to maintain jobs or create jobs for the future? But there is a societal dividend that also needs to be paid. And I think uh, we're coming up into a new round of negotiations around taxes and levies that ought to be brought to bear. And this is where the different political parties will sort of take off their, uh, their hats and perhaps put on their boxing gloves. When we look at the global financial system and the economic crisis around the world, you perhaps have a unique perspective because before you became a politician and now Deputy Prime Minister of the Netherlands, you spent over two decades as an international civil servant with senior jobs in the United Nations. Your former boss, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, has said, I quote, 
the world has a morally bankrupt financial system. He says, today's system was created by rich countries to serve their interests many decades ago. It requires deep structural reform. Do you agree? Um, it requires certainly deep structural reform. I'm not quite sure if the entire system is morally bankrupt, because that would call the Bretton Woods system uh, alongside, of which we are all a shareholder, um, also morally bankrupt. I think what, what is required is a reform writ large, that we're looking at the world through today's lens, how inequality and inequity can be tackled, because it also relates to stability, instability and security, and what we need to do to foster uh, actions uh, to tackle climate change, to foster growth, but inclusive and green growth, so people benefit, so we look at well-being. That, need, that, that needs a different uh, uh, way of working. It also needs the financial institutions, particularly the multilateral development banks, to look at their remit again. Are they assisting? Are they too conservative? Are they really putting their money where it ought to go? And are we enabling them to do so? And what is the role of the private sector and private capital? There's a huge remit for the private capital to play its part. And I think Janet Yellen, uh, uh, in her ask of the World Bank, has been quite clear. We need to open the space for private sector actors and the financial markets to take on that responsibility too. It can be for profit, but also for people and planet. And I think that's where I would align with Antonio Guterres. Let's talk about China, because it obviously plays a key role in the global financial system. But Western countries, like the Netherlands, don't seem to be entirely sure how to deal with China. Is it a military adversary? Is it an economic competitor? Or is it a trading partner? Surely it can't be all three at once. Well, um, the world would be easy if you could uh, split each part up. Um, for us, the Netherlands, we are an open trading nation. We are the 17th economy like other European Union nations, we trade a lot with China. China is an important global actor. Um, we have an, an interest to maintain good relations when it comes to trade. At the same time, we are also always looking at matters through the lens of human rights, our citizens do. Uh, and we have a, a wary eye when it comes to the security developments. There we team up closely with the United States and of course with our NATO partners when it comes to security and stability much further away geographically than currently the European Union. So, it's a balancing act. So tensions with Taiwan recently shooting down of spy balloons over the US. If relations deteriorate further, if this develops from tension into some sort of conflict, this will be so much worse, won't it, than the war in Ukraine because China is such a central part of the global system. It's a, it's a very, um, what do you call that? It's a, it would be a very disturbing scenario. And at the same time, we are rational actors and we are uh, within the European Union and NATO and we share information, we share intelligence, we prepare together, we analyze together. And I think we have a keen interest in order to ensure that this doesn't happen and that we can de-escalate where possible. But at the same time, a firm stance and clarity of messages is always appropriate, regardless of which country situation we're talking of right now. I mentioned earlier your long and distinguished career with the United Nations. Much of that time was spent in the Middle East. You were responsible in your last two posts for trying to remove chemical weapons from Syria, and then you were the senior UN official in Lebanon. 
I'd like your reflections on what's happened in those countries in the last five years since you left those posts. There are two reflections. One of them is when we were doing the chemical weapons elimination mission, there was still the hope and the belief that this could create a pathway towards a negotiated outcome for the Syria crisis, the war, in line with Security Council resolutions. Well, many years have gone by. The Syrian people remain displaced, affected, and without hope, I would say. Lebanon, my role was, uh, amongst others, to uh, prevent a war between Israel and Lebanon to be the go-between and also ensure the implementation of Security Council resolutions. Lebanon is an absence of uh, effective state institutions, and again, the people suffer. So it goes to the point of governance, corruption, but also international coordination and support and the rule of law. What saddens me is that internationally, and we know that, a crisis occurs, there's a lot of attention. There will be an envoy, there will be efforts, there will be peace processes. But if enough time goes by, the world looks on politically, as well as the media, and the people are left behind and the crisis is unresolved. And I think this is um, something we need to bear in mind. Let me ask you about politics in the Netherlands uh, and in uh, the European Union, because it's different from in other parts of the world. Yeah. There's coalition politics. You are serving in a cabinet with colleagues who you deal with every day, yeah. who also, when it comes to election time, and I know you've got Senate elections coming up, become your great political rivals. It seems almost schizophrenic, the way, the way that you are fighting people and working with them at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it could be schizophrenic, and I have to confess I don't engage in the same way because I don't find it credible that we sort of uh, tear each other to part on the 14th of March, and on the 16th of March we pretend as if it's all a jolly party, a tea party, and we continue. I don't think that befits politics, and I do not think our voters find it very credible or appealing. So my party and myself were trying to do it in a different way, uh, point out the differences, leave each other intact, as we are in a collaborative environment, but hope to persuade on the basis of content and, of course, a few additional good ideas. Around the world, people complain that the tone of politics is getting too unpleasant, too adversarial. I mean, I'm sure that's probably true here in the Netherlands. I'd like to examine the reasons why. I mean, part of it must be the media, I would have thought. In the past, there were laws and regulations which decided what television stations yeah. and newspapers could do. There were the rules of the road. Now, anyone can write anything on social media, however harmful, yeah. however hurtful, however damaging to society. How concerning is that to you, and what do we do about it? I find it very concerning um, because I think it, it certainly um, it channels and it radicalizes uh, certain groups of people, particularly of an extremist right-wing nature, online. Uh, our security services, our national coordinator, uh, terrorism and security sort of reports on this. It's worrisome because the target is often also our women, so misogyny thrives online and social media, and people of colour or people of a migration background in the Netherlands. They are even more being victimised or they're basically the, they, they present the bone of discontent for other groups. It provides a feeling of unsafety, uh, it provides for a lack of security and it also actually pushes people out of politics or the public domain. And this, I think, actually ultimately damages our state and our freedom of speech and the way our democracy is built. For you, is there a particular challenge right now in times like these being a female political leader? Um, I would say yes. Um, and I, I 
from time to time I speak about it because I feel I also have a duty uh, towards younger women uh, and girls uh, to speak out, to stay the course, to be engaged uh, and not be intimidated and stand up for what you believe in. Let's talk about your future finally. Your party, Democrats 66, has been a relatively small party in the past from the centre-left. You're possibly now at a high watermark with the second number mm -hmm. of, of, of members in the parliament. Is it the only way down now? Because also, <laughs> also there's major political change potentially coming. The Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, is the longest-serving Prime Minister in the Netherlands, and he keeps sort of signalling that he's standing down soon. Is there a possibility you'll be the next Prime Minister of this country? Well, that, that signal, I didn't pick up that he might be stepping down soon, that you might have spoken to the opposition. I'm not quite sure if it comes from him. Is it a job you'd like? Well, I think if you, if you stand for elections, you have to be in it to win it. That's what I said at the last electoral cycle. Um, what I would do in future, uh, it depends on, on many factors. At the moment, we have such a challenge uh, in front of us in dealing with our programme and our agenda on climate change, sustainable finance for the country, but also at a European level, sustaining our effort in support of Ukraine, making sure we meet the 2% NATO norms, or perhaps beyond. We have so many issues on the table. Uh, I don't look that far ahead. I hope that I can make my contribution and that um, whatever I've tried to do will be remembered in a way uh, that it made sense uh, and it was valuable uh, for whichever role I fulfill. Sigrid Karg, Deputy Prime Minister of the Netherlands, thank you very much for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you.